Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. And we are here to take you on a journey through media land with scenic stops at a few of our selected current obsessions. Today, we'll be talking with acclaimed author and journalist Max Holland. But first, Fritz, I've been recently obsessed with learning more about QAnon, but the path to there is treacherous. I'm so interested to have somebody like your nephew explain to me exactly what this is. It's entered the public conversation. Very few people understand what it is. Yes, we've hired a guide. He is my (laughs) nephew. (laughs) He is my nephew, Jake Palanker. Welcome, Jake. And I'm first going to welcome. Uh, I want to talk a bit about the Internet's capacity to propagate conspiracy theories that are especially attractive to folks who see life through a binary lens in which thoughts and deeds can easily be sorted into good and evil. Folks who prefer literal interpretations of the Bible and originalist views of the Constitution. This type of thinking is likely to have led to what the Internet knows as flat earthers. And and I was captivated by this. So my nephew Jake led me to a fantastic YouTuber named Dan Olson, who hosts a channel called Folding Ideas. He extrapolates here about how flat earthing is a gateway drug to QAnon. So Jake is here to help us better understand QAnon, where it began, and how these theories are able to attract vulnerable thinkers. Forgive my judgment. <laughs> yeah, so this video is, is, is really well done, and I highly recommend uh, everyone watch it if they've got an hour to spend on a YouTube video. Uh, it, it basically starts to begin with a, a theory like flat earthism, which uh, has recently, uh, in the internet era, found a, a resurgence online. Uh, lots of random little celebrity endorsements all over the place, and the, what I personally find interesting about flat earth or flat earthery is that it's <laughs> objectively false, right? Lots of conspiracy theories make vague claims or they talk about a shadow government and there's, oh, well, you can't really ever know what's going on. And they, they, make, they make vague predictions. And then if nothing happens, they'll find ways to bend them. Flat earth makes a prediction and it's that the earth is flat and you can, you can prove it's wrong. So you have to in order to build a whole community out of flat earthers, you have to just look at their rhetoric and their storytelling and what draws people into the movement. Because when you hear them talk, they talk about, oh, you need evidence and you need to research, you need to think for yourself. But obviously, if you were to go through and do any of these experiments, you would find that the earth is not indeed flat. Uh, so it's, it's, it's a it's, it's, it's an interesting look into the most impossible conspiracy theory still succeeding in the internet era. Uh, QAnon is a lot more complicated, but the, the video goes on to describe basically a way in which flat earthism is suddenly surged in popularity and, and it's actually dying out mostly because QAnon is beating it in terms of being a more interesting conspiracy theory. Uh, do yeah, you want me to keep rambling? Or? Yeah, well, yeah, QAnon involves you in the research. It's like, it's like everyone's playing a game of Clue and, uh, you know, they're, they're completely drawn in as participants. And what's interesting about flat, the the flat earth theory that I learned in watching Dan Olson's video is that like people love the simplicity of it just being a flat plane upon which God looks down at all of us. So to me, it feels like almost like they haven't grasped the concept of object permanence. Like <laughs> if the earth were to rotate or, or to revolve, like uh, wh- how would God know I'm here? <laughs> and uh, here's what I think happens. I, okay. I think it's like uh, Scientology. They they throw a theory out there to see how you react to it. And so they throw the flat earth theory out there 
And if you believe that, they say, where do you hear what I'm going to tell you now? So then they move you on to the next level of suspended disbelief, and that's the whole QAnon thing. If you buy the flat earth thing, step into this room, and I'll lock the door. That's a really good point, and I actually came with a few few more examples, uh, including... uh like uh, there's a uh, an association between the modern QAnon movement and this kind of like mom internet of like mi- of like middle-aged moms tend to be the like the demographic for some reason for this conspiracy theory. And one explanation for this is uh, QAnon's ability to infiltrate spaces that are predominantly already mom-centric conspiracy theories, such as anti-vaccination or uh, alternative medicine healing systems. Lots of groups that at the core, they're supposed to be about how I can sell you the right kind of crystal, but now they're all about, oh, I can sell you the right kind of crystal, and don't don't worry, Q also endorses these crystals. There's like so cross-promotion and cross-networking within these con- different conspiracy movements, and part of what makes QAnon so scary is that it hybridizes them all. Well, how about uh, sleuthing moms who love to go on the internet and solve crimes? Does that overlap with that as well? I mean, I think it shows that there's a market, I guess would be the right word for this kind of activity because, you know, the world is really scary and really boring at the same time right now. And everyone is just kind of looking for a sense of community and purpose and also some way they can help and something they can engage with in a social community. And I can't think of a better thing than trying to decode which which elite pedophiles are stealing which children from which countries, right? Like. It's, it's, it's a ludicrous theory, obviously, but um, it, it, it provides something that people are missing out on. And if it didn't, people wouldn't take it up. And I think that's what it shows us. All right. So explain us what, what Q and, who QAnon is and what is being purported. Yeah. So uh, QAnon, meaning Anon is short for anonymous, uh, uh, originated from 4chan, uh, Q, Anon is kind of uh, the, the appending Q, meaning Q-level clearance, and the word Anon. There are lots of different Anons in different spaces. Um, so QAnon claims to have high-level clearance and the insider knowledge of this elite war on uh, pedophile, uh, like elite, satanic pedophile elites, I guess is the way to put it, that usually is specifically against the Democrats, but as it's had to like become more popular, some groups are more concerned about the fact that they're Democrats and some people are just more concerned with the fact that they're satanic pedophiles. So it's, it's, it's fracturing to some degree, but it's, it's, this, it's supposedly an individual with high level clearance. Uh, if you uh, go on image boards like 4chan uh, or 8chan a lot, you would describe what's happening as a LARP, meaning live action role play, implying oh that people are just making up fun stories because it's fun and it's the internet and you can do whatever you want. Um, and, and people who are, who are LARP posting usually get made fun of or sometimes if it's interesting enough, people will take the bait either genuinely believing it or because pretending to believe something is more interesting than just saying, no, that's, that's dumb. Like it's a, it's a game you can play. But eventually this spins uh, off of 4chan onto 8chan, uh, another anonymous image board, another place online associated with internet Nazis and mass shootings, right? Uh, and in 8chan, uh, it kind of takes on a whole new life uh, where it, 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 it's taken much more seriously, right? If, if, if 4chan was kind of messing around uh, and the password getting found out and all these different things, like 4chan was kind of a mess for, for QAnon and then it moves to 8chan where it gains some legitimacy 
and then eventually from 8chan is launched into the, the broader world of the internet, including Facebook groups, and now QAnon is big on TikTok. There's lots of different, it is, it has, it has QAnon's shot in off. the Congress now. That, that's yes. where we are now. It's, it's no, <laughs> yes, and it's, that's and very it's, true. You know, and, yeah. and it, the, the, the thing is, it started as this game, as you say, on 4chan, but now it's not a game. We had Pizzagate, where this guy shows up at this pizza parlor believing this theory about Hillary Clinton operating this thing of pedophiles in the basement of a pizza. And the guy showed up with an AR-15. It's just, it's, it's, it's scary. And it's, it, it's terrifying. <laughs> Yeah, and and uh, I I heard that that part of it, although it's it's an amalgam of a bunch of different conspiracy theories, it's like an overarching umbrella of all conspiracy theories. Exactly. But some of the philosophy was based on the writings of a neo-Nazi publication called the Turner Diaries, and white supremacists adhere to the theories posited in that. It's kind of it's got a dark background, and an anti-Semitic flavor too. Yeah, and, and that's part of why it's so powerful is it's, like you're saying, it's kind of taking all these conspiracy and hate-filled threads and weaving them into a unified tapestry, right? Pizzagate, which you mentioned, actually predates QAnon, but it's such a QAnon-centric story. If you understand, you can't understand QAnon without Pizzagate. They, they feed into each other. Um, and it's interesting how you're taking the, the worst possible fears of, of, of humankind you're, and you're saying, you know, what's the worst possible thing that could happen? You, you even go back to McMartin preschool and it's satanic child abuse. Like child abuse is yeah. bad, yep. you know, <laughs> arguably, but satanic child <laughs> abuse is really horrible. Therefore, dem Democrats must be guilty of it. This is no run-of-a-mill Catholic child abuse. This is satanic no. child abuse. Yeah, it, it's, it's, it's the same exact thing as the satanic panic recycle, but upscaled into all these other connected threads. Yeah, you and, have the Jewish tropes of drinking the precious bodily fluids of children, which, you know, yes, goes back through that time. That goes back, back thousands of years. Yeah. Uh, and all the George Soros stuff, it's all anti-Semitic at its base. And not only that, but when you say, you just reminded me, Weezy, that uh, when when there's pedophilia involved, I couldn't figure out. It made no. It was counterintuitive to me that the the demographic that was most involved in this was like middle aged housewives. And I said, it's just it doesn't doesn't. Well, you know, they have to worry about groceries and flu shots and stuff. How how are they engaged in this? But as soon as you mention pedophilia, it pushes all those buttons. Right. And then there's an episode of a, a podcast that Jake and I listen to called Reply All. This episode is called Country of Liars. Uh, this is from Gimlet Media, Reply All. And Jake, uh, talk about what they what what theories are proposed in, in this episode. They're actually speaking to someone who was there at the early onset of Q catching on and he was able to witness this, witness it all. And he has some theories. Yeah. So this kind of follows the narrative very specifically. It hones in on because when you talk about QAnon, there's a person, there's a movement, there's a religious group, whatever. This focuses on the poster, right? Whoever this is supposedly is. And, and their journeys from uh, 4chan to 8chan to, to moving channels and all these different things. Um, and it, it basically posits, they talk to the original founder of 8chan. 8chan is now 8kun. They rebranded after they shut down, after they were the site of a manifesto, after some of the many shootings. Um, so uh, they follow from 4chan to 8chan. This is a initial, uh, first off, posting on 4chan, posting on 4chan, the password for the 8kun uh, trip code, but you can think of it as an account. 
uh, is, 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 is leaked. People figure out what the password is. So anyone on all of 4chan can post as QAnon, this high level military clearance expert. And they uh, did. And they did. And then a post claims that, the, that they are now moving to uh, 8chan. Uh, when they move to 8chan, uh, they move to a specific, a specific board run by this guy named uh, Paul Ferber, uh, who runs 8chan, I don't know if this is necessary, 8chan, you run your own boards rather than 4chan where it's all centralized. 8chan is a little more decentralized. So uh, Paul Ferber has more authority over uh, Q like as an individual and as an account. Uh, and even, even above that, at some point, all of the... Uh, the, like the passwords, like I mentioned for the for trip codes, uh, uh, have to be reset at some point and people have to be manually re-verified if they're being verified, leading the actual owner, the, the purchaser, not the founder of uh, HN, which is Jim Watkins, to have to manually personally verify Q. So there's many points along this chain where it becomes clear that either Q, a real human being, had to prove their legitimacy to someone or someone has an easy in to, I'm Q now. Just like on the early days where anyone could post as Q, there's further steps along which anyone could have assumed his identity. Give us an example of a Q drop, which is what people are waiting for. It's sort of like a tweet, it's like a post. Yeah, so originally I would say that they were somewhat linear sensical things of being like, ooh. Uh, uh, they're often in, in the form of multiple questions in a row. Uh, and so originally, I would say that there was some sensibility to them, and, but they have this kind of flavor to them of like, ooh, uh, when was 9-11? Why is this significant? Who was involved? Uh, who is JRG? And like, it'll just give random initialisms to be able to figure things out. It's, it's, it's like you're reading the intro to some kind of puzzle, but there's not, it never gets to the real meat of the puzzle, but the intro is interesting. So you just keep, people keep dissecting and reading these. And as it's gotten further along, Q used to make genuine claims on this date, these people will be arrested. And then it doesn't happen. It's bad to make claims when you're the leader of a decentralized yeah. group. You don't want to lose authority. So it's a lot more vague now. It's a lot more <laughs> random initialisms. What do these mean kind of things? That's, that's, a big you, that's what you hunt. learn when you're, when you're doing an apocalyptic group. You have to learn right away that you can't make specific predictions because when they don't come true, you lose your credibility. <laughs> so Q started making more general things. Uh, I'll tell you... Uh, the thing that really freaks me out about this, first of all, it's intimidating because I don't think I'm smart enough to be a proponent of QAnon because I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about, Jake. I, I've always loved your brilliance, but I have no idea what you're talking about. But, uh, but I, I, I will say that we have a congresswoman who is a, uh, is a, a believer in QAnon. We have, and this is one of the articles we got in preparing this, we, we, we see, like, vast numbers of police departments around the United States. Cops are starting to uh, believe in this theory now, which is kind of freaky. Yes, this is an article by David Korn uh, that you can find uh, on Mother Jones. Mother Jones, yeah. And, it, and it's really weird because what happens is it, it, there is some conspiracy involved in QAnon, which raises the awareness of the FBI because it becomes a homeland security threat. So the homeland security threat 
notifies a local police department about a threat, well, if you have believers in QAnon, who knows what they're going to do with that information? So it's I, I think we're at a sort of a scary crossroads with all this. Maybe I'm overreacting because, again, I'm not as smart as people <laughs> who are involved in it, but it just it seems like uh, uh, it's mind-blowing that people are buying into this theory and also that this theory has worked its way into our public life. It's terrifying. Uh, there's a very famous picture of uh, Mike Pence meeting with some members of a SWAT team, uh, one of them having a big Q patch. That picture then got taken down Ooh. and then got reposted. Yeah, so it's, uh, it's, a, it's a big deal, especially among law enforcement. Uh, there's a meme. This is going to be hard to explain. There's a meme specifically about ultra right wing reactionary politics online, which is described as don't show your power level. Um, That implies that it's really important to believe these crazy spirits, whether they're QAnon, whether it's some neo-Nazi alt-right, whatever, that you should believe these things, you should spread these things, you should try to get into positions of power believing these things, but not publicly reveal that you're one of the, one of the, <laughs> a member of a community. Don't show your power level. I'll call uh, it pass the psych. <laughs> Jake, we're going to have to, we're going to have to jump off and come back to this conversation because it's absolutely fascinating. <laughs> no worries. And we need you back as our resident expert. Yes. And, I, and now I know why you went to Harvey Mudd University. Your <laughs> brain is larger than the average human brain. And we <laughs> love you. talking to you, Jakey. Thanks Thank for you, having Jake. me, y'all. You're I welcome. Love you. Love right, you. Bye-bye. So we're going to introduce Max Holland. Max, are you there? Yes. Wonderful. Max Holland is a journalist, author, and editor of Washington Decoded. A 1972 graduate of Antioch College, he is a contributing editor to The Nation and the Wilson Quarterly and sits on the editorial advisory board of the International Journal of Intelligence and Counterintelligence. He is the author, editor, or co-author of six books, most recently Leak, Why Mark Felt Became Deep Throat, and Blind Over Cuba, The Photo Gap and the Missile Crisis. His articles have appeared in a variety of general and scholarly publications, including The Atlantic, American Heritage, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, Boston Globe, Baltimore Sun, Studies in Intelligence, The Journal of Cold War Studies, Reviews in American History, and online at History News Network. Welcome, Max. So happy to have you, Max. What an interesting life you've led. (laughs) Glad to be here. Uh, Max, as we begin our discussion, it's important to remind folks that Watergate's most notorious secret source, Deep Throat, spent most of his post-Watergate life very privately, never revealing his identity. Mark Felt was uncovered as Deep Throat in 2005 by author-lawyer John O'Connor. Felt's identity was ultimately confirmed by Bob Woodward, who went on to write his book, which he called The Secret Man, in which we learn that when Woodward finally felt that the coast was clear enough to reconnect with the source he had concealed for over 40 years, Mark Felt had lost his ability to recall exactly what he had done or why he had done it. Thus the intrigue. And so the question remains, what was his motive, which may have led you off on your journey to discover motive. What, what started you on this investigation, Max? I guess it was the eulogy that Woodward gave at Felt's funeral. Um, I was in Los Angeles, actually, at the time when I read it, and I felt it was such a disingenuous account of their relationship that um, that's basically when I decided to write my book. So did you have some theories in your own mind about maybe what was going on or what what was underlying? Well, actually, I had written a couple articles before that, um, um, because I had gotten, I started my website in 2007, Washington Decoded, 
And I'd written a lot about the assassination, but I wanted to branch out. And I read that Woodward and Bernstein had just sold their papers to the University of Texas for $5 million. So I thought, um, I've done a lot of work in archives. So I thought, well, you know, the Watergate story seems pretty played out, but the truth about archives is when you go to them, you always find something that wasn't known. So I started um, looking in his papers and of course they had to sell, you know, the, the, the crown jewel was Woodward's conversations with Mark Felt, AKA Deep Throat. And then I started noticing that um, Woodward had a varying description of his relationship with Felt. Sometimes Felt was absolutely instrumental Sometimes he was just one source among many uh, and not that important. Um, so when he gave his eulogy, I thought that it was time to really try and figure this, this out. And the first person I went to was William Ruckel's house, hmm. who was the interim FBI director in between Pat Gray um, for just like four months when the FBI was, I mean, we think the FBI is in, in trouble now, and it is, but then it was under tremendous pressure because of its you know, role in, in investigating Watergate. And Ruckelshaus told me the story of why he fired or forced Felt to leave the FBI. And I was astonished because he basically said that Felt had been a leaker, and he knew at the time he'd been a leaker. And when Felt came forward in 2005 and Ruckelshaus heard that Bob Woodward was writing a book about him, he thought Bob ought to know the story of why he forced Mark Felt out. Well, you won't find that story in Bob Woodward's book, and there's a good reason for it, because it undermines his narrative. So give us the central thesis of your book. The central thesis of my book is that Felt wanted to be director of the FBI. There was nothing more important to him than succeeding J. Edgar Hoover. When Hoover abruptly dies of a stroke or a heart attack in May 72, to his chagrin, Nixon appoints Patrick Gray, who's an anonymous assistant attorney general. And Felt is upset, doesn't know exactly what to do about it. A month later, the Watergate break-in occurs. He knows it's sensitive to the White House. The FBI's investigation is of the utmost sensitivity. And he believes that he can undermine Gray by leaking information about the investigation. But he doesn't want to damage Nixon because Nixon is the man the president is depending on to appoint him director. He's not trying to get Nixon out of the White House. Uh, and if he... In other words, it's a story of very unintended consequences. He, the FBI is the Washington agency that, you know, leaks. It's, it's, it's uh, most skilled at leaking of all the agencies. Hoover, of course, was notorious for this. So when Felt starts gingerly leaking a little here and there about the FBI's investigation, it's just to show that Pat Gray does not have control of the FBI. And if Richard Nixon wants a director like Hoover, he's got to look inside the bureau. And the top man would, of course, be Mark Felt. That's what he's after. Everything that happens afterwards is 
So it's a competition. There were three people that were vying for directorship. There was Gray, Felt, and Sullivan, correct? Correct. correct. And Sullivan. so it was purely a matter of competition of Felt trying to jockey his way to the top, unlike the, the theory that was posited by Woodward, which was it was because of his duty to maintain the integrity of the FBI and all that stuff. Well, uh, yeah, that's true. And Woodward has said it was, you know, his first explanation in All the President's Men, the book, was to protect the honor of the presidency, you know, to protect the honor of the Oval Office. Later, it became to protect the FBI from Nixon. So he's changed his explanation. Basically, that's right. Uh, it, it, for Felt, it was an internal struggle. Um, a great scholar of Watergate, Stanley Cutler, used the phrase, um, the war for succession at the FBI. And these guys were practiced. I mean, it's, you know, the problem is a lot of people at the FBI don't want to admit that the upper echelons acted in such a cutthroat, stab-in-the-back manner. But that's what Hoover's FBI was like, unfortunately. What's interesting is that we have a, a story here where it's kind of assumed by each of us that we all have the same motives, which is to do good and to do right in, in the world. So if it starts with the relationship between Bob Woodward and Mark Felt, which they had a pre-existing relationship before Watergate. A lot of people don't understand that. And then Woodward wants to believe that Felt is telling him, is leaking to him for altruistic reasons. And then this boulder starts cascading down a hill, which becomes the, the undoing of the Nixon administration. And then all the president's men comes out where they actually give the guy a name. So now he's the stuff of legend. So right. now it's every American who wants to believe that it's true, truth, justice, and the American way winning out when actually what you're saying is there's people behind all these myths and fables and there's people who are driven by the same human uh, cravings and, and desires and ambitions that, that fuel each of us. Absolutely. You have to really look at it at least in two phases. I mean, there's the phase when Woodward and Bernstein are reporting for the Post. They have a relationship with Felt. You know, regardless of Felt's motives, if he had, I mean, this is the number two guy at the FBI. If he's giving you information, you're going to listen to it as a reporter and try and confirm and corroborate it, whatever. And during that relationship, the height of which was only six months, from June 72 until January 73, uh, basically... Woodward kept to his, his word to Felt about how he treated the information. But then Woodward and Bernstein get a contract to write a book. And the important thing to remember is that the book originally was to tell the story of Watergate, you know, the story we couldn't tell in the newspaper. But in the spring of 73, Watergate, every day you open the newspaper, you know, it's metastasized. So they're at a loss. And actually, along comes Robert Redford, who hated Nixon and was an avid reader of Woodward and Bernstein's stories. And he wanted right away to do a book about these two guys. And Woodward meets him and says, you know, we're kind of at a loss because, you know, how do you write a book where you don't know what the end is? Because every day the story gets bigger. And Redford says to them, the story I want to do is about you two uncovering 
Watergate. So the book changes from a book about Watergate to a book about the reporters. And there was also a phenomenon at the time called the new journalism. I don't know if you remember it, but it was Norman Mailer put himself, you know, in the story when they were protesting at the Pentagon, the armies of the night was the book. And that's really uh, the hidden secret about all the president's men. It's the new journalism. The reporters are the story. They write about themselves in the third person, but they are the story. And so suddenly, if you're going to tell a story, you have to tell who your sources are. And Woodward go, and you know, he's pretty honest about this, I must admit. He goes to Felton says, we're writing this book about how we wrote those first six months of stories. And he goes to Felton and says, can I you know, break the rules of our engagement and identify you? And Felt says, of course not, and slams down the phone. Well, Woodward does it anyway. That's wow. in 1974, all the president's men, that's when Deep Throat is unveiled. So the first irony is that you know, the reporter who's hailed for his fidelity to his sources effectively betrays his confidence with Felt. I mean, he doesn't name him. He doesn't say where he works, but he ties him to specific stories. He quotes from him directly, and he identifies his mere existence. So those violated three of their principles of agreement. Right There's away. another interesting aspect of what you're talking about, uh, too, Max, and that is uh, uh, common knowledge was that Deep, or at least this is the way the movie represented it, that Deep Throat was only talking to Woodward, but actually he was talking to Bernstein as well, and neither knew that he was also talking to Bernstein, which is pretty interesting. And Th also, That's contested. Say it again? Max contests that. I would take oh, exception to that. I, I don't believe that's true. I know who believes that, but I, I disagree. He was talking to a Time magazine reporter named Sandy Smith, I don't know if you saw the Mark Felt movie with Liam Neeson. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. But he, Sandy Smith is in that. And actually, he doesn't get nearly as much credit as Woodward, but time broke as many important stories as the Washington Post. It just said it came out once a week. It didn't have this drumbeat of every day opening the paper. But finish your question, Fritz, because I interrupted you. No, that was it. No, I, they, you, you, you set me straight on that. Uh, and, and the other part that I wanted to say was that you seem to think that the Washington Post wasn't uh, fully transparent in what their motives were and all of the printing they did with all those stories. They had, they had another motive. Well, uh, I mean, newspaper coverage, uh, you know, if you go back to the Post stories, there's lots to criticize. You know, they didn't get things wrong just once. The centerpiece of their coverage was a story that appeared in October, and it attempted to present this grand theory of Watergate and Donald Segretti and tie it all together uh, as if Nixon were trying to subvert the election somewhat akin to our current president. And I think that was a exaggerated I mean, I don't want to minimize the crimes that Nixon knew about in, as president, but I think it was an overblown, overheated uh, explanation of what was really going on. 
All right, we're going to come back and talk about the film because you wrote a really interesting article in response to uh, your your interactions with Peter Landisman, the, the director. But first, we're going to do a commercial break. Are you going to read it this week, Fred? I'm going to read it. Here we go. Winning season returns at my bookie. Hold for applause. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contestants, and squares. At my bookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar for dollar match all the way up to $1,000 and grab yourself a free entry into the famed MyBookie Super Contest. To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at $100,000 guaranteed in cash prizes. The best part is MyBookie has thousands of bets to choose from, from the full NFL slate and the NBA playoffs, from live betting to championship futures. Every play you want to make is waiting at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks. Win big. Collect your cash. Use promo code things. <laughs> and double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Please? We bet you'll love it. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the Mark Felt movie and your interactions with its director, Peter Landisman, about whom you wrote this article for the Weekly Standard. You kind of went up against this guy. It's kind of like he he mined you for uh, information and then went off and created his hero version of the Mark Felt story. Does that pretty much summarize how it felt to you? Well, I, I mean, I didn't tell him anything that wasn't already in my book. So, uh, but I went to see him actually when I was in Los Angeles one December and went up to his Hollywood Hills home. And, uh, you know, I, I'm from there. So, and my brother-in-law is in the movie business. So I'm not kind of inoculated against the, you know, the Hollywood spiel. Or, or, <laughs> but he was, you know, putting out in full, full for me and you know, trying to sweep me off my feet. We're partners in this. We're going to bring the truth to the silver screen. Uh, you know, the, the truth that Woodward and Bernstein have sort of been hiding all along about Mark Felt. And um, I knew of Peter because he had, as I was doing my book, I heard that he had interviewed many of the same people that I was interviewing and asked them some of the same questions. And he has a background as a journalist, so I thought, gee, this is real competition. But after that first meeting, uh, I, I knew we were going to diverge because he was still into Felt as a hero. And I don't believe Felt was a hero at all. Um, and certainly the aftermath of Watergate, elevating Deep Throat and this mystery and this parlor game that went on for more than three decades, you know, it was kind of, it's, it made Woodward and Bernstein very rich, but it has very little to do with the truth. But in your book, you say heroes don't hide in shadows, or you quote someone as having said that. I may not have the quote exactly right. right. But that's, well, that's it's kind that, of like... That's a very good quote, because the person who uh, said that was, I think, William Sapphire. Um, but probably the most important interview I had was with the guy who was the head of the Washington field office, which was the... FBI entity that investigated Watergate. And he was more upset with what Felt did than anybody I met because he felt Felt had betrayed 
the FBI. I mean, think about it. Think if uh, during the investigation of Hillary Clinton's e emails, they were leaking information about the investigation. I mean, that's not what you're supposed to do. Uh, you Forget about taking sides. Uh, you know, it's the FBI way to m launch an investigation and find out what they need to know, but not disclose what they're doing along the way. But the point that you make in, in the book is that the FBI has leaked strategically as one of its tools, as one, one of its public messaging tools through, throughout the ages. And, and Mark or Mr. Felt kind of took that tool uh, to an extreme that betrayed the Bureau. And at the end of his life, when, he, when, when John O'Connor wrote the article in Vanity Fair, he tried to join the, the organization for ex-FBI. And in your book, I think you say half of the guys were like, no, we still, even all these years later, we still feel betrayed by this guy. Talk about that. Right. Um, the thing about uh, leaking is, you know, the, when I meant FBI leaking under Hoover, it leaked institutionally. In other words, when George Wallace was shot, um, right away, they pretty much wanted, they thought it was a lone guy. It wasn't a right-wing or left-wing plot. So they leaked that this guy, Brewer, uh, was by himself, sort of a, a lone assassin. So that's what I mean by institutional leaks, or leaks against Martin Luther King, you know, to destroy him. But what Felt did is he leaked for his personal inside advancement, which was, uh, you know, quite controversial inside. I mean, the thing about you know, the mystery of Deep Throat, the FBI people knew who he was, I'd say, since at least the early 90s, if not earlier. Everybody knew. They wouldn't talk about it because, it, you know, you said, well, why did he do it? Well, pretty much the reason Felt never came forward is that he knew that during his lifetime, if he started talking about what he did, there'd be enough people around who would dispute his account and that he would eventually be exposed for what he was. So who was Mark Felt and how was he regarded in his career? He must have caught a lot of bad guys and saved a, a lot of us from uh, terrorism. He must have done a lot of good in his life to have risen to number two at the FBI. But you're saying that he, he was not well regarded. Well, what I came to understand is there was a big division in the Bureau during the Hoover period between the field offices and what they called modestly the seat of government. The field offices is where the real work of the FBI is done, tracking terrorists or spies, Nazi infiltrators, and that's where Mark Felt first made his mark. But when you go, uh, no pun intended, but when you go from there to the seat of government, that's where the intrigue really starts and where the inside infighting, internecine warfare really takes place. And um, there were some people, you know, who frankly didn't want to work at the seat of government because they were interested in the work the FBI did and knew once you got into the seat of government, you got involved in the politics, the internal politics. And of course, nothing was bigger at the FBI than who would succeed Hoover. And so what, uh, what makes you feel that it the story isn't more complicated than just raw ambition. Could he have also been really deeply believing that the, the Bureau was better under his management? 
Oh, well, there's, there's no doubt he believed it was better, it would be better for all concerned. His wife was also very ambitious. It was always said that she was measuring the drapes in the director's office for the day Mark would uh, uh, fill that chair. And, uh, you know, he sacrificed a lot, like anybody who wanted to succeed Hoover, you know, moving his family around, uh, uh, long hours, weekends, always at the beck and call of Hoover. Um, but I don't think that uh, if you talk to the agents who worked on the Watergate investigation, they, they felt most betrayed of all because they would do an interview with someone at the, uh, Repub you know, the committee to reelect the president. And a couple weeks later, that same interview would be appear in the Washington Post. And they couldn't understand who was leaking that information that allowed Woodward and Bernstein to interview the same people they were interviewing and publish the same information. And they felt it impeded their investigation to have things like that appear in the newspaper. I mean, we as the public wanted to know it, but in terms of an FBI investigation, it was harmful. You know, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an indicator in the film uh, about his uh, lust for that office when he went and tried the director's chair out, which says so much. Right. And there was also a really good part in the movie. that I, I think it was the most moving part of the movie. It, they were in a bar, and I think it was the third act of the movie, and it was when his co-worker, and I'm sure this is a conflated thing because over time they probably gradually realized it was him, but there was a, there was a, a scene in that movie where they all knew it was him, and he realized that they knew it was him, and it was a pregnant pause. It was a great moment of silence there, and I just thought, wow, those are the guys you threw under the bus, or what's going to happen to them? Right. Uh, I thought the movie, you know, it, it, it paled in comparison to the excitement of all the president's men, and though in both instances, you know, basically you come in already knowing the story. And uh, Liam Neeson was a good choice to portray Felt, but, you know, if you're not going to get the story straight, in essence, and the essence of it is that Felt, you know, was willing to betray his colleagues down to the field agents in order to see himself ascend to the directorship. Um, and that's what I felt the story about Felt. You know, they called him inside, they had a moniker for him, and a couple agents told me he was called the white rat because he had this, you know, mane of white hair was, and um, carefully coiffed. And um, he worked in the inspection division for a while. That's sort of the internal policing unit of the FBI and felt uh, like nothing more to go into a field office, you know, act like a martinet, find some things wrong that he could report to Hoover. Uh, damage people's career, but the point was to satisfy Hoover. Wow. You, you, you talked about his wife, and there is a family dynamic to this, his wife's troubles and, and his daughter's uh, drifting outside the family circle there. Talk about how much of an influence that was in the decisions he was making, Max. Well, uh, he... Mm, with his, his wife, I think, was a manic depressive. Eventually, she committed suicide using Felt's revolver. And like I say, it was um, 
It was common knowledge within the Bureau that she was very ambitious for her husband. And she thought he was, uh, you know, all the sacrifices, he was the natural legatee and uh, was owned the job really. And um, when he didn't get it, and in fact, when his career came to an abrupt end, as I said, Ruckelshaus forced him out for leaking. Uh, she was very unhappy uh, because, you know, being the, the wife of the FBI director would certainly be a lot of status in Washington, you know, parties and the like. So that's a very sad chapter. As far as, as, far as his daughter goes, uh, this is one of the differences I had with Peter Landisman. He kept telling me that I didn't understand the internal family dynamics and that Felt was doing this also because of his daughter. But basically she was, um, she'd gone to Stanford, I believe, and she was sort of a hippie dropout and uh, Felt used some FBI resources to locate her, eventually found her in a commune. Um, but I didn't see what it had to do with Felt wanting to be director. You could say maybe his neglect of his children. He had another son, Mark Felt. Mm. Maybe he neglected his children because he was so focused on his career, but... So the guilt must, you know, the sacrifices must lead to something or, or they were meaningless, yeah. uh, perhaps. Uh, let's talk for a moment about near the end of uh, Felt's life where uh, John O'Connor discovers that he knows the grandson of, of Mark Felt and he, he goes up and speaks with him. And then John O'Connor develops these theories about how the Washington Post and Woodward and Bernstein were, had, had another agenda. Ha, have you been following all, all the storylines of, of all the writing, all of the Mark Felt scholars? And what are your thoughts? I sure have. Uh, I talked to John O'Connor for my book because naturally it was important to try and understand that part of the Felt story. And my take on it was basically you know, that Felt was suffering from, uh, you know, some form of dementia by the time uh, 2005 rolled around when O'Connor, or not even before that, when O'Connor discovered that he had this connection to Felt through his girlfriend, his, his granddaughter's or his daughter's friend. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not O'Connor figured out before then that Felt was deep throat, he may have, I don't know. But in any case, he realized, you know, there could be a big payday there. I mean, Felt was literally the only person involved who didn't write a book. And everyone was saying, you know, uh, where's the book? And so um, he goes to Felt. And then he starts negotiating with Woodward. And the most interesting thing I found out from O'Connor was that when he started negotiating with Woodward, he, and he's a very smart and experienced lawyer, he actually believed that Woodward had a written agreement with Mark Felt that when Mark Felt dies, he, he Woodward is released from his pledge of, you know, to keep his name secret. Well, there was no such written agreement. That was something Woodward unilaterally decided for himself when he got tired of ask, being asked who's deep throat. He said, well, I won't reveal him until he's dead. He never asked Mark Felt that. He just concocted it like he concocted so many other things. But John O'Connor actually thought there was a written agreement in a vault somewhere. Um, 
And so he negotiates with Woodward. There's this big dance for months and months. You know, Woodward, I'm not necessarily saying Mark felt is Woodward, is deep throat, but if he is, you know, and basically O'Connor wants, you know, part of the big fat pot of gold that he believes is awaiting everyone for a book about Mark Felt. Well, Woodward uh, doesn't want to share that pot of gold. So he strings them along and Mark Felt really isn't capable of writing that book. Um, they go to some other authors that doesn't work out. Eventually O'Connor himself writes it for Vanity Fair then puts out a slightly amended version of Felt's original memoir, The FBI Pyramid, and Woodward writes his own book, The Silent Man. And you felt none of these told the truth. You felt, because your book comes out after those two books, correct? Correct. And so how is your book received by Watergate uh, enthusiasts? Uh, well, by some very well. Uh, looking at the back cover, John Dean said, for anyone interested in the Nixon years, this is a page turner, a perfect blend of investigative and scholarly journalism that explains and documents why Mark felt leaked to journalists during Watergate. So and, Fantastic. And John let Dean, me ask you, let, let, I want to talk about your latest project, which I'm fascinated by okay. too, Max, but let me just ask one more, more question. Because I think one of the guys that was just revealed slightly in the movie, uh, but he, 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 he was, he had, there was a darkness about him and, a, and, a, and mystery about him was L. Patrick Gray. He was appointed by Nixon, right? right? And, and then he, he, and he was one of the guys vying for the directorship. Right. And he shut the Watergate investigation down in like 48 hours. Did he do that to advance himself or was there another reason? Not at all. Uh, that was one of the first lies that felt fed to Sandy Smith. Uh, and Sandy Smith wanted to print it, but he couldn't corroborate it. And uh, when Sandy Smith called Pat Gray to say that he had heard that he was going to say that the Watergate investigation would be complete within 48 hours, Gray went ballistic because he knew Sandy Smith was a good reporter and that he had only come up with such an allegation from a source who he believed would know something like that. And Sandy Smith's source was Mark Felt. And this is one of the things in the Mark, I mean, John O'Connor, Mark Felt book, I mean, O'Connor says that that leak probably came from Felt, but it was untrue. It was too, you know, at the time, the, the, the FBI director for the first time was going to have to be confirmed by the Senate, which was going to remain Democratic even after the 72 election. So if, Felt, if Gray wanted to be confirmed as FBI director, he knew he had to go through the Senate. And he knew that that kind of allegation would be extremely damaging to his chances. So it was, that was like the first salvo in Felt's war of disinformation about Pat Gray and then later William Sullivan. So but he's was, trying to dirty, dirty them both up. Right. Even though we know that Sullivan did some pretty scoundrelly yeah. things, for example, taping MLK. But you, were, you said earlier in this conversation that the MLK leaks were deliberate on, beha on behalf of the entire bureau? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, Sullivan wasn't doing anything that the Bureau as a whole, I mean, he wasn't doing it for personal reasons. He was directed to do it by Hoover. He was doing it under the authority of Hoover. And when they leaked damaging information about King, you know, that was, I should say, the seat of government acting for the FBI. It wasn't, you know, Sullivan acting on his own to feather his own nest. Weezy, we have to talk about the Warren Commission because yes. the Kennedy assassination okay. is, you know, okay. for boomers. So are you allowed to talk about your new project, Max? Sure, sure. You know, refresh people's mind. The, the, the Warren Commission was established after the Kennedy assassination to find out what they thought was going to the be, be the be-all and end-all of all the facts involved in the case. And I don't think there's ever been a government investigation that's been more thoroughly scrutinized than the Warren Commission. So talk about your project. Well, this is something I started uh, quite a while ago. And actually, the, the book about Watergate was sort of a, just a, it was a relaxing project compared to this one. Um, I started this uh, not too long after I saw Oliver Stone's movie, JFK. And I had been lo in Washington long enough to know that um, the idea that the CIA and the FBI would collaborate to keep secret a conspiracy was just a non-starter. I mean, there would be nothing that Hoover would have enjoyed more than exposing CIA complicity <laughs> in assassination if in fact it had occurred. So mm -hmm. I knew that there was some, you know, I didn't know what I thought about the assassination really, because like everybody else, uh, I was exposed to all the stories and uh, I really didn't know what to think. It disturbed me for example, that the commission hadn't been told about the assassination plots against Castro. I didn't know what that meant for the, the integrity or the probity of the commission's investigation. So I started out um, and I was having lunch with the editor of the nation, Victor Navasky, I think the day after I saw the film. And I asked him, you know, why he had never written much about the Kennedy assassination. And he said, well, you know, I went to Yale Law School with this fellow, Bert Griffin. And Bert Griffin is the most, one of the most honest people I've ever met in my life. And he was on the staff of the Warren Commission. And if there was anything untoward or, you know, hidden or contradictory to the findings of the commission, he wouldn't have st stayed silent. So I suddenly thought, well, that's kind of interesting. So I started interviewing the staff members, not the commissioners, but the people who did the actual work, of which there were about 15 to 17 alive at the time. And did you make any discoveries? I'm sorry? Did you make any interesting discoveries that we didn't know up until this point? Uh, well, eventually I did. Sure, eventually I did, but it took a lot of work. Uh, probably the most interesting is that the, the Zapruder film is both, uh, you know, very informative, but it's also very deceptive because <clears throat> Zapruder started, the whole film was 26 seconds. And first, for the first seven seconds, it just shows motorcycles, the advanced motorcycles driving by. Then Zapruder stops his camera. He doesn't know how much film is left. It's one of these wind-up cameras. He waits until he is sure he can see the president. Then he restarts his camera. And of course, those 19 seconds we're all familiar with. 
And I became convinced after my investigation that he started his camera after the first shot had already been fired, which I wouldn't say dramatically, but it substantially lengthens the amount of time in which Oswald had to fire three shots. And it was wow. the commission's uh, ignorance or, or of this that forced them into this extremely complicated, unnecessarily complicated and wrong accounting of the shooting sequence. And a lot of the trouble that the Warren Report ran into is because of this you know, effort to squeeze three shots into the Zapruder film when in actuality there are only two. Oh my goodness. Wow, you're gonna start some conversations with that. That's gonna be good. All right, well, I'm gonna mention your other books before we close. You have a book called Blind Over Cuba, The Photo Gap on the Missile Crisis, which is all about the Cuban Missile Crisis and the Kennedy administration about which you know much. Uh, and then you, ha you have a book called The Kennedy Assassination Tapes, which is basically, it's transcriptions of Johnson's conversation. Is it his phone conversations primarily? Right, telephone conversations, right. Uh, which we have, we have a complete record of all of his conversations regarding how he is going to earn the trust of the American people as, as a president in the wake of this tragic assassination. Right. It shows how, why he assembled the Warren Commission, who he chose, why he chose them. And then uh, after that, until the final report, it has some very interesting segments, you know, basically Richard Russell talking to Johnson about his work on the commission. They were very close. Richard Russell is he's much forgotten now, but he was certainly next to Earl Warren, the most important member of the Warren Commission. And then there are also conversations in 66, 67. The Manchester book comes out. It attempts to destroy the you know, the work that Johnson did in the transition by, because basically Robert Kennedy is, hates his guts. Uh, and then of course the Garrison investigation, John Connolly's calling him up, telling him about this crazy district attorney in New Orleans who claims that the Cubans were involved in this. So it's, there's a lot there. It, it's, it's fascinating. Wow. And it sounds like you you found some interesting threads to pull on along the way with having to do with Castro and Cuba and and all everything Kennedy related. And uh, so people would be well advised to visit Max Holland on Amazon and check out uh, all of all of his uh, wonderful works. Now, where is there a website that aggregates your work or should we just head to Amazon and look for the books? Uh, if you go to maxholland.info, that lists uh, most of my articles by subject. and oh, Brilliant. Awesome. When's right, the Warren Commission book uh, come out, Max? Excuse me, I'm so wheezy. Oh, probably at least a year from now. I'm still oh, okay. still making my, my way through it. I've started it, stopped it, and done other things along the way. Uh, about that Zapruder thing business, though, I should mention I did a, a documentary with National Geographic. It's called The Lost Bullet about you know the shot that Zapruder did not film. Oh, wow. Fascinating. Okay, we will look for that. This is a great conversation, Max. Thank you so, so much. So fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. I want to thank our guests, Max Holland and Jake Palenker. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, 
Media Path podcast, and of course, across all audio podcasting platforms as well. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, Mosey Masanka, Brian Benna, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.